Good morning, everyone. Noah, Joey and Nathan, uh, who are our staff pastors and who preach on a more regular basis, are out of town. And I stepped in to preach. And uh, I have to say that the first time I heard uh, about that we were going to go through Zechariah, I was very excited. And uh, I, had read, I had read the book during my daily devotionals, and I thought it was such a great book. And, but, but it's kind of a little bit of a mysterious book. It's not something where Christians dwell very much. Um, now that I had time to spend uh, preparing this sermon, I'm even more excited. So I hope to be able to convey some of that excitement to you. Um, the reason is that it points a lot to Jesus. The book of Zechariah comes at a critical point in the history of the people of God, and it points to Jesus. It's difficult to look at this book and not see Jesus. Um, and the second reason for my excitement is that the book is written really to give hope, a type of lasting hope to a crushed people. And we all need hope, don't we? We all need hope. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. There we go. We may not be crushed, but we need hope. Some of us are relatively hopeless and down. Things are just not working right. For some of us, there is some sort of temporary hope in our jobs, maybe in our families or in our plans. And there seem to be plenty of people out there who tell us in one way or another how to get more hope, right? You've got to do this. There's a five-step plan. Uh, do these other things over here. But one thing is certain. When there is no hope, there is no life. And when there is hope, there is life. And if you, you guys know what I mean by that. <laughs> Given the many different experiences that we encounter in the world, we are justified to ask ourselves where true hope can be found. And whether the things we hope in are real or just the imaginary result of our desire to survive. And I believe Zechariah, as the book says a lot about hope. And I believe that the passage we're looking at today uh, says a lot about hope. And the people uh, to whom these words were addressed, the recipients of this message, the first order recipients of this message in the time of Zechariah, they didn't live in very good circumstances. uh, And they could have used a lot of hope. And to these people, God sends Zechariah with a message, the message that we're going to read today. So let us listen to that message and see what God says about where we can find hope. Let us pray together now and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that in your great mercy and grace, you have revealed yourself, you have revealed your perspective about who you are, who we are, and how we can have everlasting hope, Lord. We thank you for this word that you gave these people so many thousands of years ago that is applicable to us today. We pray that you guide us in the truth and that it would affect us and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we are going to look at Zechariah chapter 3. And it will be useful for us to recap really quickly where this fits in the history of the work of God. As you know, God chose Israel and took them out of Egypt. And he brought them and he brought them into the promised land to live there in the presence of God, in obedience to, to enjoy the presence of God in obedience to God. 
However, they did not obey God. So God sent them prophets to tell them, you know, you, sh- you guys should repent. So prophets came regularly, called them to repentance. But over time, the people grew more and more distant to God, following in the, w- in the way of the nations around them. They were supposed to be a special people who were going to be different. They were going to be set apart, holy to the Lord. But they became like the nations around. So God exiled them to Babylon. Seventy years later, according to the promises God had given the, uh, the people through the prophets, God brought a small remnant back to Jerusalem. And we are told that a few years after coming back, the people were led by Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and by Joshua, who was the high priest. Zechariah lives among these people. He's one of these people. And he is called to be a prophet to these people. He's a contemporary of Haggai, who's another prophet, and likely also of Malachi. These are the last of the Old Testament prophets. These are the last of the Old Testament prophets. And after that comes John the Baptist, who is the ambassador of Jesus Christ. We saw in the previous sermons that the remnant of the people of Israel returned to, returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a, a, a city that had been destroyed. The walls had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and it had been re-inhabited by Gentiles. The temple had been destroyed 70 years later, so when they come back, they restart building the temple, which is something that God commissioned them to do essentially through the Persian king Cyrus. But they quickly encounter opposition. So they stop building. Some 18 years later, some 18 years later, God sends Haggai to them to tell them, hey, build the temple. You guys got to build the temple. And at the same time, Zechariah is prophesying what we're reading. In terms of the context of the book of Zechariah, chapter 1 starts by God basically telling them what's going on. We are going to look at chapter 3, but we really need to understand, remember what chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about. What chapter 1 says is that they had left God, and that is why they had gone through the exile. God had not failed them, but they had failed God. God had not left them, but they had left God. And now God was calling them back holding his arms wide open. Come back, come back. What follows after that is a set of eight visions. And these visions may sound a bit strange, but they are the word of God, and God cares a lot about about his word, as we saw in chapter 1. It is important that we listen. Some people, myself, would describe these visions as apocalyptic, kind of of end-of-the-world type of stuff. And it may seem daunting to read such a text and interpret it and try to interpret it, but it is there. It is the Word of God. And it's given for us to, to, to read and to apply. So I'm not going to try to interpret it in my own strength or wisdom or anything like that. But the way we're going to interpret it is in the same way we interpret any biblical text. Namely, we let the text speak for itself and we interpret it by looking at the context of the passage, of the book, and of the entire Bible. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. All the visions, there's, there's eight of them, 
are identified as being revealed at the same time in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. So chapter 1, verse 7 says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. And they appear to be, the eight visions appear to be different acts in a play, as it were. The visions by their style communicate a more distant and transcendent reality. God seems to want the people in Jerusalem in 520 BC, that's when this second year of Darius is, or was, he wants them to look beyond their immediate circumstances and towards a mighty and majestic work that the Lord of hosts is doing. You'll see in a lot of the text it says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies. And having told the people that it wasn't him who left them, but they who had left him, and having called them back, we then saw in the rest of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that God was going to punish the nations which mistreated Jerusalem and that he was going to rebuild the city. And he was going to be a wall of fire around the city and he would inhabit the city itself with his presence. And God would also bring the Gentiles into his presence right next to the Jews. So let me read really quickly for us chapter 2 verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this brings us to Zechariah chapter 3. This contains the fourth vision. And what I want us to do, I want us to go through it and try to understand it and then apply it. So, let's read chapter 3 from verse 1 to verse 10. Just for the record, my version is the New American Standard. And it might be a bit different, so I'm going to read from over there. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. 
So in chapter 3, the vision starts with Joshua, who uh, the name Joshua means God saves. It's actually the same name as Jesus, Yeshua. Standing before the angel of the Lord. It is a scene in heaven. Joshua is the high priest, and he is like... As a, as a person, he's an important, important historical figure, as I mentioned before, in Jerusalem at that time. And he's also the spiritual representative. Being the high priest, he's the spiritual representative of the people. According to the law, the high priest represented the people in front of God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the most holy part of the temple in the presence of God to present an offering for the forgiveness of sins. When the high priest entered the temple on that day of atonement, he would have to be clean and carry the blood of bulls and goats for himself and for the people. In this vision, however, Joshua is empty-handed and dirty. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments in verse 3. And to the right hand of Joshua stands Satan, the adversary, accusing him. We are not told what Satan is saying, but the contents reveal that it has something to do with Joshua's dirtiness. Satan accuses Joshua, and then the Lord reacts and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord hears Satan's accusations and reacts by asking for the rebuke of the Lord to come upon Satan. Why? Because the Lord has chosen Jerusalem and because Joshua is the brand plucked from fire. In other words, the Lord is calling for the rebuke of Satan because Satan is going against God's plan of having mercy on Jerusalem, which has already been through a lot of the Lord's discipline to the point that almost nothing is left. So a brand plucked from fire is a piece of wood that has been burned severely. So the Lord is saying he's been through a lot. He's been through a lot. Have you no mercy? But that doesn't mean that Satan is not correct in pointing out that Joshua is unclean. We are told in verse 3 that Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. And in verse 4, which we'll read in a second, this represents iniquity. He's full of iniquity. We then see God speaking to the people and angels standing there to change Joshua's clothes. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying in verse 4, Remove the filthy garments from him. We are then told that, this, uh, that by this action, his iniquity, Joshua's iniquity, is taken away by, the, by God. So continuing in verse 4, And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will close you, I will close you with festal robes. So even the observer, Zechariah, then joins into this transformation, this clothing of, of, of Joshua, by calling for a new turban to be put on, on Joshua's head. The scene is one where, overall, is one where Joshua is unclean and full of sin, standing accused, and where God mercifully gives him clean clothes and wipes his iniquity. And the reaction of Zechariah, who is just a bystander, he has no authority in heaven to say anything, can be read as a sense of urgent, yes, please quickly cover his head also. So there is a sense of dire need and urgency here.
So up to this point, Joshua is he's just standing there. He's completely helpless. God is the one doing, well, Satan is doing some of the speaking. We don't know what he's saying. And then God is doing the speaking. And Joshua interjects desperately in some form or another and saying, well, close his head as well. Don't leave him naked. Don't leave him unclothed. So now God t- turns to Joshua, speaks directly to Joshua. And um, in some versions it says that he admonishes him. Verse verse 7 says, If you walk in my ways and you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these, these who are standing here. So Joshua is first forgiven of his sin and then commanded to obey God so that he could see the face of God. So we get the image of a clean Joshua who is commanded to walk in God's ways so that he may govern God's house, have charge of God's courts, and have access into the presence of God. Now, let's pause here for a moment. This is very, very interesting. Because Zechariah's vision is in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, which is about 520 B.C., before Christ. The recipients are a poor remnant of the people of Israel. And they're concerned with survival. And yet God says, if you walk in my ways and perform my service then you will govern my house and you will have charge of my courts. These are not referring, I mean, by the context, because he says about the access in the presence of the Lord, these are not referring to the immediate local Jerusalem. He's referring to a future heavenly reality. So, God's desire for Joshua was not focused on the good life right there and then in Jerusalem, but that he would stand in the presence of God, eventually stand in the presence of God, in charge of his heavenly courts. God is talking about about a transcendent reality and an existence that goes beyond what Joshua sees with his eyes and feels with his hands. So, if you've ever wondered what's going on in heaven, behind the scenes, We have a vision here. We have a scene of heaven. We have a scene of heaven of a a high priest who stands there. His, His iniquity is wiped away and he's given a commandment to obey so that he would be able to eventually stand in the presence of God right there. But the vision doesn't stop there, does it? It doesn't stop there. In verse 8, verse 8 says... Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. The main verb here is listen. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to what? Listen to the words of God, which God is speaking. Namely, that Joshua should obey God so as to have free access to the presence of the Lord. Why? Why is this the case? Why should Joshua, listen. And the, verse of, uh, the rest of verse 8 tells us, For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. The urgency and the seriousness of the listen is given by the fact that God is going to bring in the branch. The significance of what just happened before is given by the fact that 
God is going to bring in his servant, the branch. In verse 9, backing up one second, who is this branch? The immediate context doesn't say. just says, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. But in Zechariah 6, which we'll turn uh, a bit later, does talk about, about the branch in the eighth vision. So we will, we will later kind of dwell a little bit more on who the branch is and how everything fits together. But in verse 9, God insists. So he says, For behold, I'm going to bring in the branch. For behold, in verse 9, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. So what does God say there? He says he's going to make an inscription on a stone that is in front of Joshua. Now we don't know exactly what that stone is and whether it's a stone that is physically in front of Joshua, like a stone of testimony, or whether it's, a, it's a, like a gemstone that is on Joshua's turban. But that is not important. What seems important in the passage is that judge, is that, is that the, the, the judge God makes an inscription whereby he will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And an inscription in a stone has a certain permanence to it. It's not something that you take back very easily. So, Joshua and friends, listen to me. Because I am going to bring in the branch and I'm going to definitely wipe away the sin of the land in one day. That's what the passage is saying. That's what God is saying. Now this, remember, this, the first recipients of this, of this word were Jews. They were in Israel, in Israel and in Jerusalem some 2,500 years ago. And to the years of Joshua and his friends who are hearing this, the friends are probably some fellow priests, this would have been quite interesting because they, as priests, knew from the law of God that the high priest was supposed to make an offering every year for the sin of the people. And the offering had to be done year after year and the sin never went away because had it gone away, there would have been no need for a yearly sacrifice. Now we have God saying that at some point in the future the sin is going to be completely wiped away. By what sacrifice, we may ask? The passage does not say. But the passage does say it will happen when the servant, the branch, comes. And then we have the last verse in this vision, which is verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Okay, so anticlimactic. What are we to make of this? Fig trees and vines, sitting under fig trees and sitting under vines. It sounds like that to us because we were not there. As I said before, we have to read the word of God in context. And when the, uh, and the context here is the book of Zechariah and Haggai, the book of Haggai, because it's contemporaneous to Zechariah, it's dated in each book when they're each speaking, and they're speaking essentially at the same time. So in Zechariah chapter 2, in verse 19, 
the, the, the prophet says, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. So the, the vine and the fig tree appear there. And in the middle of Haggai 2, where this verse is, that, that portion is about the fact that the people were unclean. And because of that, God had stricken them. The people were unclean, and, uh, and um, Haggai chapter 2, verse 17 says that God had smitten them and the work of their hands. And Haggai 2.19 says then that God had stricken their crops so that they would not bear fruit. So to the years of Joshua and his friends, having a vine and inviting friends to sit under it and having a fig tree and having friends stand under it meant that God's just anger and punishment was lifted. Because they planted, they had planted vineyards and fig trees and God cursed them to not produce fruit because they, the people, were full of iniquity. To the people of Jerusalem, Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10 meant that God was not against them anymore, but that they could live again and enjoy the fruit of their labor. It meant that the world would be alright again. So if we were to summarize God's words to Joshua, he, the high priest, and his friends should listen to the call to obedience because God is going to bring in the branch and will wipe away the sin of the land in one day. And then they will finally enjoy life and God won't fight against them anymore. God won't fight against them anymore. Because God fights against sin. And when we are full of sin, God fights against us. Because you see, friends, they were there. The Jews in Jerusalem that day, they were in that situation because they had sinned against the Holy God. They had been a rich and numerous people. Now they were just a remnant because they had sinned against the Holy God. And in chapter 2, God promised them some amazing things. God would live in their midst and the Gentiles would join them. God would be a wall of fire around the city, protecting the city, not fighting it. We have a picture, a happy picture of peace between God and man. And they had been given promises such as this before the exile, right? This was not completely new. They had been brought in the promised land. They had had the presence of the Lord descending on the tabernacle. And then they left God and God fought against them. And what was there to say that this was not going to happen again? They had amazing promises from God. But how were they not going to be devoured by the presence of a just and holy God? How were they not going to be devoured by the presence of just and holy God? And how will God accomplish Zechariah chapter 2, 11 that we read before with such a sinful people? 
who have a tendency to, to go away from God and leave him. And that's what Zechariah chapter 3 tells us. God's plan of living with people is going to be accomplished because he's going to wipe the sins of the people in one day. And the main point of the passage is that life is possible, life, everlasting life, lasting life, is possible because God wipes the sin of the people in one day. Let me repeat that. Lasting life is possible because God wipes the sin of the people in one day. Yes, they were full of sin and unclean just like their representative Joshua. But God was going to bring in the branch and was going to take take away the sin of the land in one day so that the anger of the Lord would be lifted and that God would be for them rather than against them. So we've gone through the vision. We've thought about it. We've wrestled with it a little bit. How can we apply it? Well, we don't live in 520 BC in a destroyed city. We live in the capital of what seems to be the most powerful country on earth. What can we possibly take from this? First, we need to wrestle with the question of how we, lawbreakers, will stand in front of God. If Joshua was unclean and dirty in front of God, are we clean? This passage tells us that there is a spiritual reality where God is a righteous judge and we are dirty lawbreakers. It is a reality hidden from our eyes. We see the effects of this reality, of this hidden spiritual reality. We grow old and we die. We are inclined to hate one another, to envy one another, to lie to one another, and a thousand other ills. We see the effects, but we don't directly see the spiritual reality. And in this passage, we are given a special message from God, a vision which reveals to us the spiritual reality. We may have a thousand problems we need to solve, but there is one problem that demands our attention. Because it fundamentally puts us in opposition to God. And that fundamental issue, that fundamental problem is, what do we do about our sin against the Holy God? Are we going to ignore it and suffer the consequences just like the people of Israel did and were cast out from the presence of God? Or are we going to listen to God's verdict and hope in His salvation? Friend, if you do not believe in Jesus... I want to encourage you to listen to this message because it is important. Your knowledge, your senses, and the world around you tell you something about yourself. But the God of the universe who lives in unapproachable light says something very important and very different. He says that there is a spiritual reality you do not feel, but which is true. You are a lawbreaker who stands accused in front of a holy God. Just like the people in Jerusalem that day, you have concerns and problems you need to deal with. But God tells the people of this spiritual reality they did not fully grasp. Consider, friend, how will you stand in front of a just God? 
Who is going to clothe you with clean clothes when Satan stands to your right hand accusing you? How will you stop God from being against you? That was the first. Second, we can praise God for the fact that he kept his word. God said in Zechariah he was going to bring in the branch and he was going to wipe away the sins of the people in one day. While Zechariah 3 doesn't tell us who the branch is, Zechariah chapter 6 verses 12 and 13 uh, does. Here's what Zechariah chapter 6 verses 12 and 13 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Zechariah chapter 6 tells us the branch will branch out from where he is, or in Hebrew, from underneath, from under. And this branch is going to build God's temple and sit on his throne. The branch will be both priest and king. In the history of Israel, the priests came from the tribe of Levi, and the kings came from the line of David. We're going to come from the line of David. And the two were separate. Priests didn't run the country. Priests, ran the, uh, priests didn't run the country and the kings didn't enter in the most holy parts of the temple. Both were set by God, but they were separate. They were different. However, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ was the branch and he united the two in one. The New Testament describes Jesus as a descendant of David and heir to the throne. So we see, for example, in Matthew chapter 27, 11, when Jesus stands accused in front of Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus responds, it is as you say. And when he was crucified, the charge against him stood at the top of the cross, the king of the Jews. And the apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, uh, verses 9 through 11, God highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the message of the New Testament is clear. Jesus Christ is the King. At the same time, we are told he is the high priest of God. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So Jesus is also the high priest. We are told he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross to wipe away our sins. The apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he did it in one day. And on the third day he rose again, showing us and the whole world that he did it. The sins had been wiped away. So the promises made in Zechariah 3 have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. God kept his word. While Zechariah was looking forward, we are looking backward to the cross. 
For us, it's in the past. And we can praise God for the fact that He kept His word on such an amazing and difficult to accomplish promise. And isn't this vision and its fulfillment amazing? Isn't God amazing that He would have mercy on sinners such as this in Jerusalem and such as us now? Isn't God amazing that He would tell us what He was going to do and then do it? Isn't it amazing that He actually went through with His plan since it ended up being more costly than Zechariah reveals to us? God's very own sign died for, uh, died for us. Are we going to stand unmoved at such a truth? Brothers and sisters, such great works of the Lord call for our praise. Let us not ignore or gloss over these things as if some ordinary thing happened. God spoke from His holy habitation and revealed to us a great danger, the danger of His wrath against our sin. But He did not leave us there. He gave His one and only Son so that we might be saved. If you ever wonder, when is God going to do things? Well, it took 400 years for him to bring Jesus, but he brought Jesus and we're looking past 2,000 years. So God keeps his word. And you, friend, who have not put your faith in Jesus, are you going to ignore such a great work of God? Or are you going to accept God's verdict of you and rely on the clothes that Jesus provides? Are you, friend, not going to put your faith in Jesus so that you can see the face of God? If you want God to be for you rather than against you, if you want to have a lasting future, you need to confess your sins, turn back from them, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. When you do that, your sin will be taken away and the anger of God removed from over you. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus himself, the king and the high priest, says, He who believes in the Son that is in him, Jesus, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Brothers and sisters who, uh, who have put your faith in, in, in Christ, let us not forget this wonderful truth. Oftentimes Christians think to themselves, yes, I believed in Jesus, I am saved, let's move forward. But that moving forward should be moving forward in obedience, fully aware of the grace that God has provided you. Just like Joshua was clothed in new clothes and then told to go and obey, so are we to live. Moved by the forgiveness of God, praising Him for His faithfulness to provide forgiveness of sins, we need to walk in obedience. And this brings us to the third and final application. The third application is we can rest in Jesus' identity and live in the hope of the presence of God. Even though we live in much different circumstances than the people in Jerusalem that day, we do live in a broken world and God is yet to fulfill the rest of His plan whereby He lives with His people. And we are constantly assaulted by problems. We are constantly told that what we see is what we get. We are constantly encouraged to be somebody and accomplish great things, especially in a city such as this. And many times we listen to these messages because we are made of flesh and we tend to evaluate the world through our senses. We tend to focus on the things we can see, 
on the things we can hear and on the things we can grasp with our hands. God knows how we work and He knows how we function. And we function the same way the people in Jerusalem functioned. And yet in the dire situation they were in, the remnant of Israel in that day, God chose to send them a vision of being covered by sin and then being forgiven and then calling them to obedience so that they can have access in the presence of God. And God tells them to look forward to the spiritual reality of God's living in the midst of His people which will one day become physical reality. Contrary to them, we are not looking forward to the wiping out of our sins because that was accomplished by Jesus 2,000 years ago, as we said before. It is finished, as Jesus cried from the cross. But we can rest in the work of Jesus and in the new clothes and identity or identity He provides for us when we believe in Him. And we are clean in front of God and we don't have to work to earn our places in the world anymore. We don't have to be somebody because we already are children of God as the Bible describes us. And we can look forward to the rest of the promises that have not yet been fulfilled. We can look forward to life with Jesus. We can look forward to God bringing down the heavenly Jerusalem and living in the midst of His people. God wants us to look forward to that reality today. The vision of lasting life in the presence of God is the same vision that Jesus talked about when He taught His disciples how to pray. In what is known as the Lord's Prayer. What did he say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Friends, living our lives, we tend to forget the God perspective. The God perspective is that God is at work in the world. And that he promised to do something some 2,500 years ago. And he did it when Jesus came into the world and died on that cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem, and resurrected on the third day. And the God perspective is that people, including God's people, have tried for centuries to be happy without God. And they all ended up disappointed, and they were unhappy because sin caused God to fight against them. But the good news is that lasting life can be found in Jesus, in the presence of God, through the wiping of sins. And in Jesus there is hope, for a lasting life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our blindness, in our self-deceit, and in the 